Welcome to the Tightly Coupled Book Club. I'm Mina, joined by my eccentric half, Aji. Hey, cats and kittens. For this episode, we read chapters one through four of Active Record Migrations in the Ruby on Rails Guide, version 7.0.5. Aji, did you learn anything that surprised you this time? Okay, I'm going to go with this one. It's not explicitly in the guides, but reading the guides inspired me to finally look it up. That syntax at the top of your migration where you have class, whatever your migration name, inherits from active record migration with bracket notation and a number. I don't really ever see that syntax anywhere else on a class name. So I looked it up and it's exactly what you think. That class has a method, def self square brackets, and it returns an instance of class that is the version of active record. So if you upgrade Rails, the migrations will run the way that they did when they were written, and the behavior doesn't change even if the underlying Rails version has changed over the years in your application. If you have older versions of migrations, essentially means that if you upgraded Rails in your application a few times, you could potentially have code that is running on an older version of Rails. I guess it's kind of an older version of Rails, right? There's a big comment in the file where that's defined because Rails has great documentation even inside itself. It's maybe not backwards compatible because the new versions don't necessarily do the same thing, but you still have the old methods that are around because you don't want any surprises if you're running those old migrations. But another question, do you delete your migrations? Because I've heard that some people do that. I've heard that too, but I think that's a whole conversation on its own. I have never deleted migrations that were already run, because what if you need to run them again? True, true. So it stood out to you in this section of the reading. I think that through these four chapters, I ended up learning a lot about things that I didn't know migrations could do. There were several methods that I had never heard of or had never used before. When I think about, for example, create joint table is a method you can use to create joint tables on your has many associations. I have always just used create table and kind of set up the internal structure of that table in a certain way when it's a joint table. But apparently you have a helper method that can just do that for you. I'm in the same camp as you that I would use create table and define the IDs just sort of manually. I had the same experience. You bet that I'm going to reach for create join table next time around. Also kind of zooming out a bit on migrations in general. I had mentioned in previous episodes where I have a, I don't know if it's a bias, but preference towards anything to do with manipulating data, interacting with data. And I feel like this is where it all starts, right? You don't really have data until you have a database and you don't really have a database until you have a schema and migrations are really the at the heart of it all. That's certainly the first place that my brain goes for either a new feature, new application, whatever it is. The first step is always, what does the data look like? And with Rails, that is making migration. And I think we have talked a lot already about our different learnings, different feelings about this section and the chapters we read. But maybe for those of our listeners out there that don't know what database migrations are, in your own words, Aji, what are database migrations? Doing this again, huh? Every time? I should start to prepare these. Well, migrations as a concept are not specific to Rails. They are little bundles of code that manage changes to a database. It's a little bit like a database layer infrastructure as code kind of thing. 
right? You're writing code that is going to change the shape of your database, whether that's through a Ruby DSL, like Active Record Migrations, or a raw SQL or some other form. I really like the way that the guides had put it. And I, in retrospect, it all makes sense. And I didn't really think of migrations this way before. But in the guides within the first couple of paragraphs, it says you can think about each migration as being a new, quote, version of the database. So essentially, each migration file in a Rails application is almost like a little commit, like a git commit on its own. Of this is what the database looks like at this point in time. That's a really interesting connection to draw between a git commit and a database migration. That really resonates with my kind of internal model of what a what a migration is. So that's a cool way to think about it. It's these sort of atomic small changes to the underlying structure that much the same as a git commit can be reverted, can be reapplied, could theoretically be moved around in the order that they're applied, that sort of thing. Certainly. And I have been thinking a lot about mental models ever since your talk at RailsConf in Atlanta. And I just want a mental model about everything. And I think that this is a good one for migrations. I think another cool thing that I learned besides some of those helper methods I didn't know existed is the idea that your migration runs in a transaction. So we've all encountered situations where our migrations fail at some point and we maybe take it for granted that it sort of cleans up within each migration. If something like a third step in the migration file fails, it kind of handles itself. And I realized from reading these chapters this time that really more than a gift from Rails, it's really a gift from Postgres. And I've just been sort of spoiled that most of the projects that I have worked with have been Postgres databases because the migrations will run in transactions only if your database supports transactions. So if you're using a database that doesn't support this transactions feature, when parts of a migration failing, the successful part will not be rolled back. And I never thought about that before. Yeah, although my experience has not always been with Postgres, but I think all of the databases I've worked with have been able to do transactions. So until reading that in the guides, I had never really thought of that as something that databases might not have. For me, that gets used so often and so reliably that it's just something that I would expect a database to have. Active Record has made decisions for us about how to use databases that I have come to expect. And what's the word I'm looking for? Is it like you internalized it? I've internalized it as database things rather than decisions that Active Record has made. For example, the existence of an ID column and timestamps, things like that. I recently migrated an older node app where the obviously the Postgres database was not managed by Rails. It's a node app. Uh, and the decision was made presumably by developers by humans to have no columns for timestamps like created at and updated at. And it was not like difficult to work with, but it was definitely something that maybe I was debugging something and I was like, oh, let's just see when these were, like these records were manipulated. And I didn't have that. Yes, back to those special columns that add behavior, right? And timestamps are the one that is put there by default by the Rails generator. So it's just something that we're used to having and we can rely on being there. And another one of those 
kind of simple decisions that Rails takes care of that adds a lot of value. I like that you said generators, because we had a couple of conversations about generators that we don't use in previous episodes, and we finally got to a generator that I do use. Me too. It even says right there in the guides, like, nobody wants to type out a timestamp to name a file, so we'll use the Rails generator. So you use the Rails G migration. Do you use the command line interface to create your columns, or do you go into the file? <laughs> Never. I have never used the command line options to add these sort of like internals of a migration. I don't know. Maybe I should start. What about you? I have an interesting split, and I'm not exactly sure why this is. When I'm in a code base for work, I will Rails G migration, give it a name, and then go into the file. But if I've got a toy app or something that I want to kind of throw together to prove a concept or try out a feature or anything like that, where it's just for me and I'm learning, much the same way as I might not write myself good commit messages all the times, I just kind of throw my migrations together on the command line. For me, there's this split between it being more serious or not, and that's completely within me. That's not Rails at all. That's just something that my brain has decided. So let's see if I understood you or delineation there. So for the more serious stuff, like for work, you would write the internals of a migration by opening up the file after it's been generated and for something that's lighter and less serious like your toy app you would just throw in the columns and types straight into the cli yeah that's interesting that's interesting because my thinking was i read through the introduction of these helpers that will let you kind of put in all of the columns and its type into the command line generator and it would basically generate the migration file having already filled in all the columns. And I was thinking about that and I was like, huh, I don't do that. I do it by hand. I do a lot of things by hand. And then I went, it's not very undeveloper of me that that's my inclination. To me, that's interesting where it's like, doing a serious thing, you are sort of leaning in the behavior that I thought were less developer-y or developer-like. I think maybe it feels like I have a finer grained control, like there are options and things that I can put onto columns inside the file that I couldn't do at the command line. But of course, this reading showed me that I can do at the command line. I just don't know how. <laughs> You can also do it on the command line and then edit the file that it does generate, right? If you have additional options. Absolutely. Another thing being, I don't really ever remember the syntax well enough to be writing migrations off the top of my head. The method calls for inside the file are the ones that I'm going to devote any kind of brain space to remembering. And I'm not going to remember two different syntaxes to do the same thing. And frankly, I can't even remember one. I am very familiar with this page of the guides because I come here all the time to look up those methods. That's fair. And this is also maybe another place where we can potentially contribute to the guide or write a blog post because I always want a list of default values for these different options because I can never remember and it's hard to find. What do you mean by default values? For example, in t.references, foreign key defaults to false. Right. If you leave off the foreign key option, it won't add a foreign key constraint to that column. But I think for the most part, when you're adding an association like that, you do want 
the foreign key constraint on that column, but you have to remember to add it. I was also surprised by you know, putting those two things together because with the sort of 80-20 philosophy of Rails, I would expect that most of the time you're going to want your default to have that foreign key constraint at the database level. I think it's going to be more of an outlier if you don't have that foreign key. And I'm not sure that I could think of a time when I have set up a relationship like that and not wanted the foreign key to exist. I struggle to come up with a use case for leaving that foreign key true off of a reference in a migration myself while I was reading it. And I now often think back to what Eileen Yushitel has said in her keynote at RailsConf that there's a lot of very deliberate decisions that go into how Rails handles different things. And I wonder if this is one of them and what that reason might be. I know that some people that write these guides have listened to our podcast. So I think that if you know the answer, you should definitely reach out and let us know. In my imagination, pretty much every small decision about Rails is discussed to the nth degree and found out sort of the best operating case for all of the little pieces. And I'm sure that that's not true all the way up and down. I'm sure it's true for a lot of things. But to this seems like something that was probably decided very purposefully. I don't know if that's true or not. I guess the great thing about open source is that we could go trolling through GitHub and maybe the PR that added that is in the Git history which the Git history of Rails does not have every single commit that was ever put to Rails. It starts at a certain point in its life. And if this decision was after that point that is available on GitHub, maybe that discussion is there to go and read and find out. I would point out that in the guides, it very specifically talked about the recommendation for references is that they do recommend that you add foreign key true to your references in the migrations for referential integrity. It says, quote, that the constraint guarantees that a row in the association table exists when the ID column matches the association ID. That's important. And I do agree with this recommendation. However, does the existence of this recommendation lead you to believe that this is an intentional decision? I do think it was intentional, but I'm not sure that I had put together that story as you had now. That makes a lot of sense, though. Even though it feels like the people who have written Rails and the guides believe that foreign key true is what you should do, and they're going to recommend that, even though it's not the default, makes me think that the default was for a very specific and useful reason. But now also I'm conjuring up political stories between the people that wrote Rails and the people that wrote the guides. It's like the people that wrote the guide section wanted it to be the default and they're getting back at the people who wrote the code by putting it in there. And it's like, ha, people are going to do it this way anyway, because it's in the guides and you didn't go with the decision the way I wanted to, but I'm going to get the last laugh. And that's probably not true, but it's my little Rails soap opera. It's my headcanon now. I will watch that reality show. Well, there's two that would. Can we talk about leaving comments on databases? Sure. Did you know you can do that? I did not. I did not either. But apparently you can only do it on MySQL and Postgres databases, but you can leave little comments on the tables and at the column levels. So that's comments that are actually living in the database as opposed to living in the Rails code base so that if someone is exploring the database directly through its own console, they would be able to see your comments. I think that's pretty nifty. Yeah, I think it's cool. You can leave descriptions and documentation the same way you would with code comments. 
but I had no idea that databases can do that. Yeah, I guess this is more tallies in the column that our next series of documentations that we'll read will be the Postgres docs. I think that will be fun. The one hesitation that I would have about comments that live in the database as opposed to even in the migrations is that they would get out of sync even more easily because they are further away from where the code changes are happening, especially using migrations and things where you don't go into the database console itself very often, if ever sometimes, that they are not going to be surfaced very often and could get stale really easily. That just means you have to put a little more consideration into what you would document at that level. I imagine something that won't be very fluid or change very often. There's not much in an application, though, that I trust enough that it won't change. That goes along with one of the recommendations or guides that we at ThoughtBot have for writing migrations, that if you are going to be manipulating data in a migration, which probably you should avoid doing in the first place, but if you need to, use SQL rather than active record classes in a migration, because sure, that class exists now, but maybe it won't if in the future this migration needs to be rerun. And I had that come up on even the users table in a recent project. And I still wrote it out as SQL rather than referencing users, even though I don't think that the users class is going anywhere. Still, it's something that I don't trust to be permanent. When I see code that is in a migration file that is outside of the migrations DSL, I get a little twitchy-eyed with it because of this idea that migrations are little versions of the database. And this is sort of what we were talking about before. This is what the database looked like in this point in time. Generally, I feel like data changes that needs to happen once maybe a rig task is a little bit better tool for that. What do you think? I absolutely agree. In the same way that I think using the Rails console in production or on your real data is a bug that manipulating data shouldn't happen in the migrations. The instance for which I am talking about most recently was creating something that as soon as the table existed, it needed to have a record for every row in the users. And so it just kind of set that up with all of the defaults pre-populated. So something like that I feel okay about because it feels almost as though it's part of creating the table. Mm -hmm. But if you're, you know, changing or things like that. That's definitely something that should happen at a higher application layer level. Yeah, I have nothing to say to that. I agree. Oh, there was something I wanted to ask you about, and this might just be a really quick question and answer. I got to the section about the practicality of running migrations and reverting. Is it a habit of yours or is it just me to always run a DB rollback after you DB migrate a new migration? I don't think it's just you, but it's not me. Fascinating. <laughs> Tell me why. I just don't think to, I suppose. The thing that's frustrating to me is if you're working with a migration and it's not solid yet, you need to make some changes and try it out. I always forget to roll back before I go and change the migration code and then the rollback fails and then I have to go undo the migration code to get it back and then roll it back. Your habit that you're speaking of here would not help that, but I think it's definitely a good habit to be into to make sure that your rollback's going to work, just period. 
Yeah, I think that I've run into enough kind of successful migrations that eventually become or cause issues. So I've seen enough successful migrations that eventually cause issues in production for whatever reason that didn't come up in local development that I always want to make sure that the migrations that I am writing are easily reversible. And so kind of the habit of running rollback right away it lets me know early in the development cycle, I think, whether that is going to be a problem or difficult to fix. And maybe for me, it's just that I know I didn't get it on the first try and I'm going to have to roll it back. So I've rolled it back 10 or 15 times before I push it up and PR it. So maybe I'm getting that kind of functionality out of it <laughs> either way. I was about to say that I really should alias a different command, kind of like people do with YOLO and the reset. They'll just run migrate and run rollback right away. But then that also loses the feedback that that migration is or isn't successful in the first place. When your schema just kind of goes back to the way it was before you ran it, that doesn't really tell me anything. So another thing that was new to me is the reversible method that accepts blocks for up and down. Here I was like a doof using, and I quote the guides, the old method of writing def up and def down when... I'm writing something that can't be inferred, the inverse. I had no idea that reversible was a thing and that that it's the new style. When I first saw it, I thought, what is the difference? Why does this matter? And then they showed an example of a change table with its block and then a reversible call with its blocks. And then it made a lot of sense if you want to put two things in the same migration. It's the same kind of atomic change, but some of the things are rails that it can infer and do the reverse on its own. And some things, either it needs to be raw SQL or whatever it is, needs to have the different directives for forwards and backwards. Yeah, that means you don't have to repeat the operations that will be reversible by Rails and just handle the up and downs of the ones that are irreversible. What about, did you know, before reading this page, about reverting an entire migration by calling revert and passing the migrations class? No, I didn't. And I have, again, just over here writing the opposite migration operations when I want to revert a previous migration. If a migration added a table and I want to get rid of that table, I'm just over here writing drop table where you can just revert and pass it a class. You have to require that file though. That's true. I don't think that's too big a deal, especially if my editor is going to autocomplete the file name. That's fair. Okay. So when you have a revert in a new migration that you pass an old migration class name, Sure, it's going to do the same thing, but my personal opinion is that now you have to go into that old migration file to see what it is, what operations it is performing to revert that previous migration. Whereas in my very verbose process, you can kind of see it right there. It's dropping a previously created table. It's just written out there, especially for the migration file. I don't need that brevity. I don't know what your feelings on about that. I've never used this in the wild, but I don't really have a problem with just throwing that revert in there, especially because the file name is going to be required at the top. I also don't really have a problem if you don't revert it directly. I think there's probably a threshold of complexity that would make me switch from writing drop table to using the revert. Like if there's a lot happening and my tippy tapping on the keyboard might miss something, then I think that revert is a great great thing to reach for because it's going to 
encompass the whole thing. Yeah, that makes sense. The create and drop table examples are too simplistic to really demonstrate the power of the revert method. And I also really like that you can kind of revert parts of a previous migration as well, not just the entire thing. If you're doing it by hand, you mean? No, in revert. You can pass revert a block and then copy in the entirety of a previous migration step, just a part of a previous migration, and it would basically perform the opposite of what you put in. The example in the guides is that it passed a reversible block with an up and down directly as written in a previous migration into a revert block. And essentially in running the migration in which the revert was written, it will run the down is my understanding of the example from the guides. I read that example and the paragraph following as the guide sort of saying you could do all of this stuff by hand or you can just let revert handle it all. But I'm looking at it now and it is the portion of a previous example. So yeah, see what you're saying there. What about raising active record irreversible migration? In a down? Yeah, I didn't know about that. If you don't do that, what will happen when you try to roll back an irreversible migration? I think that's for something that might programmatically be reversible but would cause irreparable harm either to your collection of data or to the business, something like that. So it's something that can be reverted and that rollback won't fail unless you raise. Gotcha. Because if it's something that's irreversible and it won't go back, like you left off a type on something and so Rails can't do the reverse of add column or whatever that is, then yeah, it's not going to work because it'll fail in that transactional rollback. But you want to stop something that would go through without intervention. It's essentially the human developer saying you could do this, but you shouldn't. Exactly. I guess I didn't read it that way and I love it more or I love that strategy. I really like when you can put something in when you have all of the context of a particular thing to protect yourself and other developers in the future, whether that's things like database constraints and validations, adding special linter rules that are just for your project, making a test that will fail if somebody updates the schema in a certain way, you know, different things like that. So I am really in favor of this being a tool, even if I haven't ever written a migration that might need it. You're going to use it now. <laughs> let's wrap up. Yeah, let's do it. For next episode, we are reading Active Record Migrations, chapters five through nine. If you have feedback or constructive compliments, we can be reached on Twitter at underscore tightly coupled and on Mastodon at tightly coupled at ruby.social, or you can email us at tightlycoupled.dev at gmail.com. And show notes can be found in your podcast player of choice or tightlycoupled.dev. Bye. See you later. I think the one hesitation I have about columns that live in the database Comments. is all the columns live in the <laughs> database. <laughs> all right. Save that for the end.